temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, or you might get canceled. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break away from the cult of perfection to live braver, bolder, and happier lives. In today's episode, it's bittersweet because I'm stepping down as the CEO of Girls Who Code, and this is going to be the last episode of Brave Not Perfect, at least for now. Sometimes the bravest thing to do is to step away, to make room for others, and to give yourself space to grow. Look, I don't know what's next, and sitting with that uncertainty has not been easy for me. I'm trying to take my own advice and enjoy this time where I can get some rest, but it's hard because I want answers and clarity on the future. One thing that is clear though, is Girls Who Code is in incredible hands. The one and only Dr. Tarika Barrett will be stepping up as CEO, and her outstanding leadership is why I feel comfortable stepping away from what has been the most meaningful work of my life so far. And I'm thrilled to be able to still support her in the organization as its board chair. We have had an incredible run on Brave Not Perfect. I've interviewed some amazing political minds like Stacey Abrams, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and Hillary Rodden Clinton. Celebrities like Lizzo, Jamila Jamil, and Yara Shahidi, and media stars like Ariana Huffington. I've learned so much about bravery from our incredible guests. So if you're looking for inspiration, I encourage you to listen back through our many, many episodes. And if you want to continue following my bravery journey as I figure out what's next, you can find me at Reshma Sajani on your favorite social media platforms. And now we move to our final interview. And it's one of my favorite conversations I've had on the show. And it's fitting because it's about grief. I know stepping away is the right thing to do right now, but I'm mourning closing this chapter of my life. And it's also the one year anniversary since COVID changed all of our lives. Many of us are grieving for loved ones and for the lives we had before this incredibly difficult year. That's why I've invited my friend, Marissa Brene Lee, to join me for this episode. She's writing a book called Grief is Love about what comes after a significant loss and how to find joy while in the midst of grieving. Marissa is a multi-talented writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. She co-founded Supportal, a platform aimed at helping people through life-changing challenges, and started a breast cancer nonprofit called The Pink Agenda. 
She's also the CEO of Beacon Advisors, a social impact consulting firm. I've learned so much from our conversation, and I hope you do too. Hi, Marissa. I am so excited to talk to you because I read your piece in Vogue where you talked about how hope is not the same as optimism. And it really, it really moved me. Can you talk about that? I mean, I feel like you have a similar understanding as I do that, you know, hope and optimism can't be the same thing because of the things that we've both been through with infertility. You know, I am still childless after about four years of trying. And so while I don't feel optimism around becoming a parent, you know, tomorrow in my day-to-day life, I do have hope that it is something that will work out eventually if, you know, Matt and I stay committed to that ultimate goal And, you know, I think the combination of what I've learned through grieving my mom, what I've learned through this infertility journey, and then also, frankly, you know, just being a black woman in America, you can't just hope for this country to be what we say it is and what many of us want it to be. You know, you have to put in the work. Otherwise, we're just, we're never going to get there. Yeah. I mean, that's what I love what you write about. And I think about this a lot is like hope is a practice. And some people, when something bad happens to them, like you, they lose a parent or like both of us, we lose several children. It's really easy to say life's not fair and just go into a deep, dark place. And for some people, it's like suffering actually creates strength. This is something that you talk about. Like, how did that happen for you? It's a good question. I want to make sure that people don't think when they hear from or see people like you and I who seem to have it together and are able to continue to achieve and, you know, do things professionally and enjoy life, even in the midst of these hard times, that we don't have those deep, dark days. Because trust me, I have had plenty of them. You know, this last year has been a real challenge. I still can't believe sometimes that I don't have the child that I want. I also, as you know, became really sick through the fertility treatment process and spent a lot of last year like sick and recovering and just trying to get my health back in the midst of a global pandemic that also took my 35-year-old cousin from our family. So there are those days where, you know, you do feel defeated, you know, where you are heartbroken, you know, there are those moments of depression and anxiety, you know, but for me, I, I continue to look at the example that my mom set, you know, she was sick for half of my life with her. And even though she had a lot of really, really, really terrible days, you know, she was determined and committed that as long as she was here on this earth, she was going to live the best, fullest life possible. And that is what I want to do. And, 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 you know, that's just who I feel like I am. And if nothing else, as my mom's legacy, you know, I want to do as much as I can with the things that I have been blessed with, even when these hard things happen. What, What did that look like in your house? 
Oh gosh. Um, that, that's a great question. You know, I grew up in a family that was, you know, working class until my mom got sick and could no longer work. And it became more of a struggling family from an economic perspective, but she never let that keep her from doing fun little things, you know, buying treats for people. I think about, you know, my hometown chocolate shop and how many little gifts and treats I got from my mom from that place Mm -hmm. or, you know, every single holiday, every A on a report card, you know, every end of school year treat, like there there was always a little something, no matter how much or little my parents actually had financially, you know, every holiday was an event. My poor husband, I know he loves me so much, but trying to compete with my mom around (laughs) birthday and, you know, like everything was special and it was thoughtful. And, you know, even at the end of her life, she was still getting her hair and nails done Mm. and she was too sick to go to the salon. So the guy who owned the salon would come to our house with all of the tools and equipment. And so I, I have all of these very vivid and specific memories of what it looks like to live a big, full life in the midst of hard times. And so, you know, I'm trying to do the same to the best of my ability. How did she learn that? Because, you know, a lot of people can't do that. Again, I think that's why we're so have so much admiration for people like your mother and Joe Biden, where you look tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. It's easy to just be angry. Whereas your mother... You, me, we turn our grief into love. We give more. The more we suffer, the more we give. Yeah. Right? Like, how did she learn that? How can you teach that? That is an excellent question. And until you asked that question, I, I hadn't really thought about how she learned that. You know, I think some of it comes from just being a Black woman in this country. You know, you basically have two options. You can let the world grind you down, or you can find your spaces of peace and joy and love. You know, I think the other thing for my mother in particular, and and this also applies to myself, you know, we have a deep sense of faith. Yeah. I too have a deep sense of faith and God plays a big role in my life and my family. And I grew up that way, but I do think that as I suffered through big tragedies, that's how I made it through. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's not perfect. You know, that doesn't mean there weren't times when I was mad at God, like so mad, you know, why, why do I have to be going through this again? You know, I know I quote unquote, don't deserve this. Like why, why, why? But eventually, I do think it is that commitment to faith that has helped me get to the other side. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you, too, about like grief and perfection. You know, you've talked about how, you know, as a perfectionist, right, you try to push grief down, right? Yeah. And not talk about your fertility struggles and miscarriages. You know, like that's something you talk about a lot now. What advice do you have as you've struggled with grief and perfection and trying to find how to, you know, grieve the right way? And what advice do you have for us? So I have two distinct pieces of advice because I've learned that the experience that I had as a woman with infertility and pregnancy loss is very different and a very different kind of grief than what I experienced when I lost my mother. You know, when I lost my mother the desire and frankly, at the time, the need to continue to keep it together 
you know, mentally, psychologically, emotionally, financially, you know, everything. I, I felt like I didn't have enough of a fallback plan to really just let go and fall apart. And so the combination of, you know, this very practical need to continue to move forward and then this sense of societal expectation around grief and what it's supposed to look like and, you know, the five stages and how long you should grieve. I felt like I was failing because I was still so heartbroken, mm-hmm. you know, a year, even two years after I lost my mom, like I just, I just missed her so much and was still so sad that I thought there was something wrong with me because mm-hmm. we didn't talk about grief you know, now almost 13 years ago, the way we do now. And so my piece of advice to folks who are grieving the loss of a loved one is don't do that to yourself. You know, there is no set timeline. There is no right way to do it. You don't have to get over it. The only thing that you have to commit to doing is figuring out in a way that is healthy, how you're going to live with your grief indefinitely. Like that's it. Forget everything else. And then on the infertility front. And I remember texting you this at the time, I felt a sense of personal failure. Mm. Like I felt like the fact that I couldn't do this very, you know, frankly, ordinary thing, it made me feel like there was something wrong with me. And are there things wrong with my body, you know, from like a health perspective that keep me from being able to reproduce the way I would like to? Sure. But is there something, you know, quote, wrong with me? No, absolutely not. But that's how it felt to me. Like it felt like very personal and a deep, deep sense of failure came with that. And I would just say to, you know, women and men who are out there struggling with infertility, don't do that to yourself. Like you're fine. Don't make yourself feel like you're not okay because you can't reproduce the way you want to. You just said something that really made me think. You made me think about like, is grief a privilege for some? And I was thinking about all my black and brown friends after the insurrection and the trauma and the grief so many of us felt as you saw those nooses. Yeah. And it is very much that sense like as a black woman, I have to keep it together. I actually don't even get the privilege to grieve. So... For- <laughs> Um, I don't mean to jump in, but I have to, because this is actually going to be one of the themes in my book. You know, it's, it's a weird thing to think of grief as a privilege. And so the way that I have come to think about it is like really getting into your grief and going to the place that I think proper healing requires, it requires vulnerability. And I've been thinking a lot about who is given the space to be vulnerable. Mm. And what I have stumbled on is, you know, like, how can you be like truly emotionally vulnerable and fully let yourself grieve things if you are not valued enough by society to like be vulnerable? You know, if you are already made vulnerable by the way society treats you because you are a person of color, because you are a black woman, because you are poor, you know, whatever it is, you're not going to be in a place where true vulnerability is given to you. So like, what do you do? You know, how do you make sure that even if that 
privilege or vulnerability is not extended to you, that you are able to access what you need in order to heal because healing shouldn't be a privilege. Like yeah. we can't let healing be a privilege. So what do we do? Absolutely. And look, I think as a daughter of immigrants, I was very much raised to keep it together, right? Like hardship after hardship, discrimination, racism, you weren't allowed to fall apart, right? And so when personally I had miscarriages and all my fertility failures, I couldn't cry in the office. <laughs> Absolutely not. Or I mean, it's shocking to me now looking back on it, how like my five best friends did not know that this was happening to me. I often read about it when I wrote about it. And it's kind of wild that like, I was like, wow, like grief is, has been such a privilege, right? In the way that I've been raised that you weren't allowed I wasn't taught how to fall apart. And we kind of know, right, in the postmortem of this is that that is, it is healthy to fall apart, right? It is yep. healthy to scream and cry and wail and be sad. And it's not healthy to deal with it the way that we've been taught to deal with it or we've been forced to deal with it because of society. So I'm really glad you're writing about this because I think it is really, 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 really important thing that we teach the next generation and ourselves, right? That you do get to grieve. Exactly. Exactly. And for me, you know, I stumbled upon this vulnerability privilege stuff when I was comparing how I dealt with our pregnancy loss in 2019 versus, you know, how I dealt with losing my mom in 2008. And, you know, in 2008, I was working for a bank in New York, Brown Brothers Harriman. The bank is founded by, you know, an elder of the Bush family. Everybody was white. Pretty much everybody was male, except for me. And, you know, I was just getting my career started. And like I said, my parents, you know, they were not people who had vast financial resources who could, you know, jump in and support me if I needed to take months off of work and, you know, figure out my feelings. Like that was, that was just not a thing. It was not an option. And so I white knuckled my way through it and it was terrible. And I, and I know it was made worse by the fact that I, I just didn't feel like falling apart was an option. Whereas in 2019, you know, I have a business and a nonprofit and a supportive husband and a house in the suburbs. And, you know, I'm much further along in my career and I felt like I could do whatever I needed to do to get through that loss. And that's what I did. And it, it wasn't easy, but it made it easier, honestly. Yeah, it does. I'm watching a I'm watching The Good Fight right now. And, you know, it's about a black law firm. And one of the main characters, Luca, is a powerful black woman. And it, like every time she goes to a party or an event, a white person will come to me like, oh, my God, Trump. It's set when Trump is just elected. And she just kind of rolls her eyes. And it realized, like, right, like, black people didn't get to complain about Trump. They weren't allowed to fall apart about Trump. White folks did, yeah. right? And they got to hem and haw. And, like, but, again, that's privilege. Yeah. I don't think people have seen it like that. And talked about it in that way, you know? You are absolutely right. Literally, when you just described that scene from the show, instantly I rolled my eyes. You know, I know we can't see each other, but I just rolled my eyes thinking about how many encounters like that I had where I just thought, really? Like, you, you think I'm not taking this personally, particularly as an alum of the Obama administration? Yes. And that I'm not terrified and I'm not <sighs> mourning right? For all of it. So yes. I know your, your theme of the title of your book is grief is love. I love that. What do you mean when you say that? 
So for me, what I decided this year, as I kind of sat suspended in this space of motherlessness and childlessness, is that the reason why I feel so much pain and sadness at those two things that you know I don't have is because of how much I love them. You know, like I really, really loved our one surviving embryo. We named him Carl. You know, it was it was a whole thing. And the love that I had for my mom, I mean, it is unmatched. And it's just it's just it's hard. Once I realized though that, you know, the reason why I'm in so much pain is because of the love. I don't want to say it made it easier because it is still very hard. You know, I hate February because it'll be my mom's birthday and the anniversary of her death within 10 days of each other. But it made it something that I could better understand. And then right after I came to this conclusion, I actually found myself in conversation with Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother. And she talked about loving her son in the present tense. And I was just like, wow. You know, like if you, given all that you've lost and the way that you were forced to live in the spotlight and the immediate aftermath of your loss can find a way to love your son in the present tense, like I'm going to do the same thing. Hmm. It's also so powerful. I have found that my empathy and my ability to connect to others having suffered is what's allowed me to do that. Like I often wonder, like I didn't go through these things in my life when I'm hearing someone talk about the loss of their child or a parent or they have cancer, right? And I immediately start to want to cry. Like would that have happened? And I think a lot of people are not able to have empathy or connection. I mean, that's what I find so interesting about this moment is that a lot of people are struggling, like really struggling right now. It's because this is the first time they've really felt grief. Yes. Yes. I think that's right. It was really hard. And so many people did so much for me and, you know, were so amazing, but it was very hard for people to figure out how to show up for me when my mom passed away Mm. because I had just turned 25 and we were kids. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of your friends hadn't gone through anything like that, hadn't lost a parent, hadn't miscarriage, hadn't experienced anything like this. They didn't know how to relate to you. No, I mean, many of them thankfully still haven't. And that's, it's, it's hard. But like you said, when you have had these experiences, it just completely changes how you respond to someone else when you hear that they're going through a hard time. Yeah. So we have, have so much trauma and experienced so much trauma this year. I feel like we're all waiting to just like throw our masks off and, you know, think everything's going to go back to normal, but we're going to be holding so much pain. Like we talked about how it took you years, you yeah. know, and in their probably moments years later, we're like, oh, I'm behaving this way or I'm feeling this way because I miss my mom. Right. You didn't even probably make that connect. And this is, I think, what's going to happen for a lot of people over the next couple of years that like COVID inflicted trauma. What, what, what advice do you have for people? So I have some personal advice and then I have some you know, sort of policy systems change advice because you and I both are also always thinking with that hat as well. You know, on the personal side, I think everyone should find a way to continue to acknowledge the pain of this year and to let it be a guide 
that helps you live differently going forward. Because after all of the pain and trauma and death and, you know, all of the racism that has come to light in 2020, I just, I feel like we should take it as a chance to think differently about, you know, how we move in the world and how we engage with one another. I found by the time, you know, maybe April, May hit, when people were asking, how are you? Like no one was accepting, okay. And I put that in air quotes and no one was just saying, okay. You know, people were starting to tell the truth. You know, I would ask a colleague, how are you doing? You know, how are you holding up today? And I'd say, well, you know, my kids are refusing to sit through Zoom school and I'm running behind and I haven't showered, you know, so it's not the best day. Like, like let's continue to be more honest yeah. with one another and on the other side, you know, more supportive and full of empathy for one another because life is going to continue to be challenging and difficult on the other side of this for sure. And we're human beings. So let's let's actually be human beings and treat one another with more just kindness and gentleness. And then the other thing that I have been thinking a lot about, you know, we have a man in the Oval Office who is not only, thank God, not named Donald Trump, but he has suffered so much. Like he has experienced more loss in his lifetime than most people ever will. And I think he has a very unique opportunity to help us figure out collectively how we're going to move through our grief. And I think the president needs to think about, you know, how does the country heal properly from this national tragedy? You know, what are some of the, unfortunately, you know, comparable moments where we stepped up and looked at, you know, what we needed from a policy perspective to help people heal? Yeah. So, you know, I want to see like a national day of remembrance. Like it shouldn't just be January 19th, 2021. Like this should be an annual thing. There should be, you know, some sort of memorial. There should be some sort of memorial fund. You know, I've been thinking about what does reparations look like with a COVID lens? You know, there are a lot of people in this country who have just been incredibly proximate to death for the last year. And that is hard. Yeah. So that was, that was a lot. These are all really powerful ideas. You know, this younger generation really is cognizant of mental health and talk about it, right? In ways that we did not. And they are honest about their feelings and what they need. And I do think that that is a cultural shift. It's almost like part of being American is not acknowledging, you know, you're not having a good day, right? It's like bucking up and like keep moving through. And I think if we continue to do that, we won't unify as a country. We won't heal because we're just like putting our feelings in a box and kind of locking them away. Exactly. We need to stop doing that. Yeah, we definitely need to stop doing that. So what do you think it means to be brave in grief then? This is something that I am researching and planning to write more about in my book. But I think the bravest thing that those of us who may not feel like we have societal permission to be vulnerable, like the bravest thing that you can do is figure out what level of vulnerability you are personally comfortable with and find a way to take up space, you know, like give your feelings the space and the time and the care that they deserve, 
even if you feel like you're in a place where you're not being given permission to do that, because you deserve to do that. For women of color who are listening to this in particular, you know, do whatever you need to do to be okay. And don't, don't let anyone make you feel like you have to silence your feelings. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think back in the day, pre-COVID, I feel like on Instagram, there's something called negativity shaming. Like you really couldn't talk about how if you weren't feeling well or you weren't celebrating or your marriage was on fire or, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like, don't tell me that. I want to, I just show me your beautiful photos. Cool. Tell me why you're happy so I can like your photo. And now we've gone, I think the other direction, right? Where people actually aren't showing any joy on social media because collectively we're on so much pain. The inauguration I think was so interesting because I think a lot of us were laughing and crying and dancing and joyful. And there was a moment where I was like, am I allowed to feel this happy in this moment? Yes. I think because President Biden is like griever in chief. Yes. Because he's such an expert in grief, he realizes that part of moving through is celebrating the loss, right? It's like, we're going to remember what we've lost. That's how you move on. And I think that that's a very powerful lesson that I feel like I've been learning from him. 100% yes. I want to say two things on that. One, on the Instagram piece, I agree with you. But one of the things that I have struggled with is even some of that vulnerability sometimes feels performative. And like mm. people are saying, you know, like, oh, it was so hard. And like, now I'm fine, you know, like very like packaged. And I just want to make sure that, you know, folks who are listening or who, you know, follow along on social media, nothing is ever as perfect, even those quote vulnerable moments as Instagram makes it seem. And then on the present, oh my God, I'm so happy I can say the president and Joe Biden. It just makes my heart feel so full. But to your point on the president, he knows what it looks like to live with grief. And he knows that it is it is okay to have those somber reflective moments, but it is also okay to have joy. You know, one does not negate the other. And it just makes me so happy. And I also feel really seen as someone who's you know, lost loved ones. That's beautiful. Well, how can our listeners support you and follow your work? So you can follow along on Instagram. I'm Marissa Renee Lee. And on Instagram as well, you can sign up for my sort of monthly newsletter. I would love for you to join that community. It's where I share my random musings and also some behind the scenes takes on what it's like to write a book. Yay. That was wonderful. That's Marissa Renee Lee, a talented speaker, writer, and entrepreneur who's writing a book called Grief is Love. You're going to definitely want to check it out. Thank you so much for listening to Brave Not Perfect. It's been such an amazing ride and your support has meant so much to me. I hope you continue to live your life with bravery and break away from the cult of perfection because you deserve to live your happiest, truest, and boldest life. Stay brave. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. Tanya Zaporonik and Charlotte Stone co-produced this episode. And of course, we couldn't make Brave Not Perfect without unwavering support from Deborah Singer and Rashma Sajani.